Okay, hello and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changed from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau and as usual, I am joined uh, by a mighty fine blog, Zed Davis. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great, thanks. Um, we are talking to you in the height of summer, um, as if by magic, and uh, we are in the midst of a blockbuster season, um, a time of year that generally I hibernate and uh, don't like to come out to see all the explosions and ghastliness on the show. Um, so this uh, podcast, we will be talking about blockbusters, uh, various aspects of how they've changed, how they've not changed, uh, you know, how they've developed or not developed, or uh, we'll be talking about block- box office disasters, box office smashes, and uh, generally just uh, ragging on blockbusters. Sounds good. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, what's caught your eye on the blockbuster spectrum this year, Ed? So far, I've been... Uh I've been most impressed by the Avengers, um, both in terms of the film and its phenomenal runaway success. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was it had a good balance of um, action, comedy, uh, interesting characters, and good dialogue. A lot of which are often left out of modern blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it kind of felt, even though you know it's the uh, height of modern whiz-bangery in terms of its effects and, and everything like that. It felt almost, in some respects, kind of like a throwback to a sort of a better time of uh, blockbusters when... A more innocent time. A more innocent time when scripts mattered and uh, it wasn't just about how many explosions you could fit on screen. Imagine that. Yeah. I can barely conceive of it. I've not seen The Avengers. Um, um, so I can't possibly comment. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, we may as well get this out there now. I have an aversion to uh, the modern blockbuster. I find it very difficult to relate emotionally to uh, CGI characters um, that aren't toys, as <laughs> fair to say. Um, and there's a lot about modern blockbusters that I do like, and there's there's elements of it, but then I kind of disengage quite quickly as soon as it turns into a blurry, weightless fight between people I don't care about. Mm. Um, but this year's quite notable for its blockbuster run. We've had... Like I said, the Avengers, one that's been uh, not only commercially successful, but critically universally acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've also got um, a couple of big blockbusters coming up uh, in the next month and towards the end of the year that are kind of significant. Um, we've got uh, The Dark Knight Rises. That's correct. And we have The Hobbit. Um, yep. Why uh, did you pick those out as being significant? Well, I think... <clears throat> What, what I find quite interesting with this year is, to me, it seems like we have reached sort of an apex of the modern sort of run of blockbusters, the the modern era running from sort of maybe the late 90s up until now. Certainly, it's, it feels like a culmination of, of the last sort of seven or eight years because, you know, in 2005, Batman Begins came out and we're getting the end of that. Uh, in 2008, Iron Man came out, and now we've got the Avengers. And even though the Avengers isn't the end of the Avengers story, because they're all going to have their own separate films, and it's going to keep going, and there's going to be an Avengers 2 at some point, um, that feels like a culmination, and it kind of feels as if an epoch has ended by that happening. Um, the Hobbit, even though it's the first part of a two-part film, feels like a culmination of, you know, a, basically a, a decade's build-up, really, of people waiting for it to happen. And um, 
when you look at sort of the next year, next year's slate of blockbusters compared to this one, mm-hmm. it looks kind of barren in, in comparison. You wonder if there's ever going to be another year where there are going to be this many massive hits, essentially. I mean, this is the first year ever where I think there's legitimately a chance that three films all released in a 12-month period will make over $500 million in America alone. Mm-hmm. Um in the shape of the Avengers, which has already achieved it, Dark Knight Rises, which probably will achieve it, and um, the Hobbit, which probably will, because you know at this point the uh, that one's going to have to really fuck up to <laughs> not make that much money. Yeah. Um, how do you feel personally about the Hobbit? Because I have mixed feelings about it. I have mixed feelings about the technology. What the frames per second or the yeah 3D or the the, four, the forty eight frames per second and the three D mainly because like if I I would be very interested in seeing what a film shot and projected in forty eight frames a sec- per second would look like but I you know I really like the Lord of the Rings trilogy a lot and I kind of have a lot of interest in seeing the Hobbit done well and I kind of don't want to think that it was made by someone who wasn't entirely invested in telling the story, but was being distracted by trying to push the technology forward before it's ready. Do you think that we have got someone in Peter Jackson who isn't really invested in the story because they weren't originally supposed to be the director? I think he probably is invested in it, because obviously the Lord of the Rings trilogy is his great achievement. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he views that as a as something that's kind of like an albatross around his neck or anything like that. He clearly has a great deal of affection for those three films, and I think he wants to do the best job that he can. And obviously, like, the only reason he wasn't going to do The Hobbit was because of legal issues that were keeping him away. And then, by the time that those had been cleared up, he wasn't available to do it, and they got Guillermo del Toro in, and then bigger problems with MGM meant that Guillermo del Toro couldn't do it. So I don't think there's a lack of passion on his on that side but it seems to me that it's you can't really tell focus on that story and be messing around with stuff that's never ever been tried before Mm -hmm. at the same time unless the technology is driving the story like i for example something like you know the pixar films every time they make a new film they're doing some sort of technological innovation that's no one's ever done before in cgi um james cameron's films often he's trying to he's using the technology to try and tell a story uh in a way that couldn't be told before with the hobbit i see no reason why that story couldn't be told in 2d at 24 frames per second using the technology that jackson already created for the lord of the rings trilogy Mm. it seems like a load of piling on extra stuff that isn't going to help the overall product and so that's that's kind of my that's my main worry is the idea that the technology will distract will have distracted from the story and maybe not created as good a film. Yeah, I I kind of got mixed feelings about it because um, when I I mean I got my issues with the Lord of the Rings trilogy as as, as much as I, I I do kind of like it, but the Hobbit was always more attractive to me because mm-hmm. the book is better, mm-hmm. the book's funner, it's more kind of. Uh, Adventury and less kind of songs and yeah. uh, wandering around aimlessly. Yeah, uh, space, space stripped down. Yeah, it seems spare by comparison. 
Um, but I, it, it feels really like an afterthought. It's only been made because Lord of the Rings did well. And I mean, yeah, it, it, I keep thinking, are they going to make a Silmarillion after this? And they're going to, you know, I mean, just really scrape in the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, because that's kind of the only way they could go, really, isn't it? Yeah, unless they just remake Lord of the Rings. It's been ten years. They can, yeah, they they can reboot it. Yeah. Yeah, it's about time we had a Lord of the Rings reboot. Yeah, <laughs> do a grittier origin story of, um, <laughs> of whatever, I don't know, whatever there is in Lord of the Rings Finally, that has an origin. Finally, they can make the film about Tom Bombadil. Yeah, spin-off, played by uh, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that would have been... That I'd watch that, actually. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that's crazy enough to not work, but, you know, at least you'd be driven to watch it by how crazy it is it's the kind of thing that would attract james franco yeah james franco As a is performance piece tom bombadil <laughs> brilliant um yeah well also we've got in addition to the hobbit the dark knight rises mm-hmm. which is the title i keep forgetting um the sequel to the dark knight and before that batman begins for my dad probably out there who doesn't know <laughs> um but um how do you feel about um the dark knight rises because there really is that lingering suspicion that three is in films very rarely the magic number yeah usually that's the one where people overextend themselves yeah um i'm fairly excited by it um i think that christopher nolan has he hasn't got the problems that say sam raimi had when he did spider-man 3 mm-hmm. because the problem that sam raimi had when he did spider-man 3 was there were too many cooks essentially there were lots of people telling him what villain had to be included like he didn't want to put venom in there and as soon as you add venom to that equation it um becomes you know and uh, that the film became overstuffed and you know very diffuse um I'm not saying it would have been a great film had they taken Venom out of it, but, you know, if they could have focused in a bit more on fewer characters, it probably would have worked overall better than it did. Um, And I think he has, you know, demonstrated with the previous Batman films, with um, Inception, he's, you know, very good at melding spectacle to sort of more cerebral ideas. You know, he's he's not the most intellectual filmmaker out there, but in terms of blockbuster cinema, you know, he's... I think he's a step above a lot of his contemporaries in that regard. Mm, which is um, like being the smartest kid in the lowest set. It is a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's a lot there's a lot of good uh, in it. Uh, the people involved are all pretty good. He seems to have sorted out Tom Hardy's voice based on recently <laughs> released stuff. <laughs> as, as much as uh, it would have been fun just to kind of have everyone just sitting there. What? What? Uh, especially if that was all Batman was doing all the time. Yeah. I can't understand you. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> just two yeah. gravelly, incomprehensible men. Just like it'd be like a mumblecore blockbuster. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, Imagine that. <laughs> let's not. No. Okay. <laughs> Makes for terrible. Batman work. who lives at home. <laughs> <laughs> Batman lives in his cave. Um, but yeah, I, I feel about uh, there's there. I don't know. There's there's just this suspicion in my head mm. that um it's impossible to overcome the the problem with the trilogy yeah and i i, I really if it does i mean it'll it'll prove us wrong yeah i mean uh i'm hopeful that it proves us wrong but yeah i, I mean I, I when i saw the trailer the uh i yeah i kind of i was less 
concerned by Bane's voice as I was by his coat that he seems to borrow off John Motson, <laughs> which uh, the kind of sheepskin jacket yeah. like, <laughs> stepped off the set of Minder. Um, but no, yeah, it's it's something that yeah I hope is good, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope it wraps it up and kind of puts a bullet in Batman for a while. Mm. What I am slightly fed up with is, or a bit confused by actually, is Nolan's kind of over realisticness that he's done Catwoman in yeah. like he's done it in a massive realistic way. Um, and he's kind of uh, tried to kind of make her rooted in some kind of uh, um, kind of practicality. But the lead character of this film is dressed like a bat. <laughs> and that seems si- silly. This is why Tim Burton's yeah. Batman films kind of work, because he just goes off on a, a gothic flight of fancy, mm. and it kind of works. It makes its own rules and goes off like that. Yeah. Whereas the Batman films, it's the bit about the bat that is kind of... I don't know. Seems a bit silly. I don't know. I quite like the tension between those two. It's it's quite interesting to see someone try and navigate what is a very thin line mm-hmm. between uh, something that is cool and interesting because it's treating this thing in a really realistic manner and trying to make it fe- seem practical, and that thing then becoming ridiculous because it's impossible to do it. And I think on the previous films, he's just about managed it. Mm. Um, and I'd hope he would be able to do it this time around because he's not. He's not introduced the Penguin or the, no. the Riddler or anything like that. And the first film, Batman Begins, had some vaguely supernatural element in it. With not really. Didn't wasn't there Liam Neeson and and Ken Watanabe with the same person? But that wasn't that wasn't necessarily uh, mystical. It was more that the Ken Watanabe character was. Uh, kind of the front for it, you know, that he was the... And then oh. Liam Neeson was the guy behind it all. The guy behind the guy? Yeah. Right. See, well, I thought they were... It was like they were, one was like a kind of ghost or something. No, I don't think... I never uh, thought that was what it was. I have been confused by Batman Begins. <laughs> <laughs> I am not, I'm not the audience for these films. Um, but yeah, I mean, those two, um, I dare say, will be huge financial successes. And yeah. Given who's directing them and their track records will probably be huge critical successes. Yeah. Um so does that make those films kind of bomb-proof, I guess? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's it's very difficult for... I mean, because of the economics involved, it's now very difficult for a film to be a complete out-and-out bomb because we films are released to so many theatres at the same time and with such like overwhelming marketing worldwide and there's now so many theatres worldwide and such an audience out there that hasn't existed before you know Mm. um globally that even if a film isn't a massive success in america or if it out and out doesn't do well in america it will probably make its money back so i think that there are lots of films that could be considered bomb proof but i think those ones in particular are especially bomb proof because they're pretty much guaranteed like however much they cost they're pretty much guaranteed to make most of their money back within the first, like, ten days of being released, which is something that a lot of other films don't have because they don't have that built-in audience. Mm. And if they're good, then that means that they've got, you know, the sky suddenly... The sky's the limit, basically, as The Avengers has proved. Because um, with The Avengers, there was that sense of if the film wasn't terribly good the least it could expect to do would be like maybe around about what the Iron Man films did, which is about 300 million. So, you know, 
that's kind of a sense of okay there's a there's like an upper limit of what you can achieve but it's still massive success like that's the least you can expect to do and then once the film in question is actually pretty decent you know mm. that that rises exponentially yeah um talking of bomb proof okay and uh bombs um let's Dam say, busters. take a <laughs> <laughs> that when wasn't that being remade didn't it, peter jackson have something to do with yeah, remaking Dam busters he was going to produce it and i i want to say that neil blomkamp the guy who did uh district 9 was meant to do it i think he was <sighs> i think he was meant to do it before he did district 9 but that, they wouldn't let him because he'd never directed a film before. Yeah, that would be my minimum qualification for directing. Yeah, something um, like that. And I think it was just a case that it. Oh, that might have been Halo, actually. No, yeah, it was Halo. It was, it was Halo that they they it was the Halo film that Neil Blomkamp was going to direct, but um, they wouldn't accept it because he hadn't made a film before. Um, and then I've always kind of felt that the last, the, the third act of um, District Nine is kind of his way of saying "fuck you" to them because there's a lot of Halo-y elements in that final act. Yeah, there are. District Nine was all right. Um, it was pretty good. I enjoyed um, that a lot. Yeah, uh, up until um, the, that big robot comes out because mm. you know this whole point, this whole uh, kind of uh, analogy for apartheid and stuff. Um, well, you know, you wouldn't have an underclass if they had technology to giant fucking robots the whole time. And we're not talking... Marx um, wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> um, I had this argument with someone um, who said, um, you know, but, uh, you know, Soweto was awash with firearms and guns, mm. um, you know, during apartheid. But they, you know, it was not really just about hardware. And I said, well, there's a difference between AK-47 and a robot that can fire you know, heat-seeking missiles out of its anus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it, it, yeah, it was a bit silly in the end. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, the, the argument that they've lost the technology is uh, a bit, it's kind of a weak argument, really, especially because they found it. <laughs> yeah, they found it in some cans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, they had it all along. But a good a good film. It I, is good I, film. I enjoyed it. Um, I recommend it to all. Um, We're talking about bombs. Yeah, we're talking about bombs, and that film, of course, was a sleeper hit. And lest we forget, Oscar nominated for Best Picture, District yep. Nine. Um, by no means a token award for a film that exceeded expectation, <laughs> having stretched the nominees um, from five to ten. Yeah, have it, being short of things to do. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, having realised that the Lovely Bones was shit, and yes. so it couldn't be included in the top ten. They needed something Jackson flavoured to get in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they gave him his Oscar nomination for something. Yeah. We've had um, a spectacular bomb this, this year. A kind of good old-fashioned uh, kind of... Unqualified. Unqualified disaster this year in um, uh, the shape of John Carter mm-hmm. of Mars, possibly. Um, which we've both seen. Um, I... I saw in not only 3D, but in IMAX 3D. Wow. Um, which was like watching it with your head inside the television. Uh, and it was thoroughly unpleasant. Um, but yeah, I mean, that film um, bombed in such a spectacular way, even though it made 200 plus million worldwide, around yeah. that worldwide. Um, still a failure. Um, why do you think that was it? Uh, I think that it's down to, A, the... Uh, sort of incoherent marketing which changed the name of the film uh for spurious reasons mm-hmm. uh which were to do with 
the idea that if it's got Mars in the title, people won't go and watch it. Right. Which may be true, but it seems it's it's the sort of thing where as soon as how did Mars Attacks do? Um, not great. No. What um, about the films of Kenneth Mars? Um, surprisingly well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Mars Bar movie that doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> no, that doesn't exist. Um, We've lost it. Ed. Um, the uh, the uh, as soon as you change the title of a film, it puts a negative spin on it um, straight away. I mean. Over uh, a few weeks ago, I watched the documentary, which is all up on YouTube, about Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's pointed out in there is that the failure of the film... It was, was called Heaven's Gate of Mars. It <laughs> was that um, the negative publicity machine sort of ramped up um, as a result of some of like an embedded... Basically, an embedded reporter, a guy who passed himself off as an extra, went on set for like a week and then reported about all the crazy crap what was going on. Right. Um, and that kind of put the John Carter thing into perspective for me because it kind of made me think that, you know, a name change is a minor thing, but when it's a really major uh, film and you've already, like, put out posters and, you know, there's quads in cinemas and everything and suddenly you have to change them all, it makes it look panicked Mm. and straight away allows people to kind of instantly portray it as in some way troubled. And, yeah, to change it to something so nondescript as well. Mm. Yeah, as if you can hide the fact it's a sci-fi film. Um... Also, in terms of modern me- uh, movie marketing, there weren't any moments in the film, in the trailers for it, that kind of made you think, wow, I have to see that. Mm. There wasn't any, to use an example, um, you know, Inception had the whole Paris folding in on itself thing. Uh, it had a money shot in there. Yeah, the, uh... which it, there isn't in, uh, there wasn't in the, the trailers for John Carter. And the weird thing was, they didn't put across John Carter's story, even though John Carter's story is relatively simple, mm. which is man winds upon Mars and saves a princess. Yeah. And they somehow, you know, they just made it all incoherent to the state where, and they failed to get people interested in it through either spectacle or story, which are the two the two ways in which you try and grab people, really, in adverts, is either make the story sound really compelling or promise sort of visual splendour. Or stick a star in it. Or stick a star in it. And Taylor Kitsch, um, no matter how much he takes his shirt off, <laughs> isn't going to fool anyone. No, that's true. Um, he's uh, got a bad year ahead of him, I think, because he's got Battleship, which has done okay worldwide. That's the reboot of Battleship Potemkin? Yep. Yep. Um, what else has he got? And uh, he's got Savages, the Oliver Stone film, which probably will do okay, because I don't think it's got the same sort of budgetary expectations. But um, he's in, like, three films this year, and uh, what I think was meant to be the year that makes him the next global superstar has not turned out that way, which is a shame, really, because anyone who's seen him in Friday Night Lights knows that he's a great actor. Did he play Gambit in the X-Men films? Right, okay. That's kind of, I think, where I know his name from. Good yeah. name, Taylor Kitsch. It is a good name. Um, but looking down the list of some of the most famous uh, bombs of all time, um, you know, what's the common thread that kind of links them? Uh, I mean, I've just picked out a few uh, here, kind of off the top of my head. Um, the Adventures of Pluto Nash. Uh, it's a comedy that's not particularly funny. Yeah, and it's just weird. Yeah. Um, I want to say, um, not Randy Newman. Randy Quaid. Quaid. His performance in that is... Um, uh, there are no words for it, really. It's like watching a mentally ill person pretending to be a robot on the moon. It's it's <laughs> reprehensible, <laughs> okay. uh, Pluto National. It's so weird and not in a good way. Yeah. Um, 
and just so thrown together. And oh God, I'm trying to remember who directed it. It was someone. Oh, it was um, Ron Underwood who did Tremors, and Tremors oh, really? is a really good film. And Adventures of Pluto Nash is kind of not. No, it's yeah, it's it's not not really very stellar. Um, uh, things like Last Action Hero, which is well quite meta really it was a blockbuster yeah. about blockbusters and kind of parodied quite, a lot of blockbusters quite good i remember my dad sneaking me in to see that i think i was only about 10 right 15 wow i remember quite liking it and probably not quite understanding what the hell was going on in it yeah i think i think uh films about filmmaking never do very well because um, i think people in general don't Apart from want the artist and singing in the rain that's true uh are they the excep- exception i think they're exceptions or? and also they're not they don't do well like the artist did amazing for a silent film about filmmaking Mm -hmm. but in terms of like most commercial cinema it was still you know quite a small fish in a very big pond um and singing a rain in the rain was i think that's more gets by on the fact it's you know got romance and musical and comedy elements it's not strictly speaking a film about film it's not scathing satire on the film industry exactly it's not the player no exactly Mm. um i think uh, people don't want the artifice to be kind of pointed out to them. Right. I think that's also something that in some ways may as, as probably hurt Cabin in the Woods a little bit. I mean, Cabin in the Woods has done fine, but it's the sort of thing where you think, were it not kind of a meta-deconstruction of the horror genre, mm-hmm. it'd probably do better. It'd be a worse film. Right. But people don't want to have, like, the process of filmmaking pointed out to them really because they like to enjoy the artifice yeah um we talked about the avengers earlier what about the avengers the uh the the big screen adaptation of the british tv series um that was a big bomb underrated classic yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah a curate's egg you could say (laughs) um i've personally not seen it have you seen it uh, yeah, I saw it in the cinema when it came out. It was awful. Right. Really quite dreadful. Um, Sean Connery's bad in it. I mean, Ray Fiennes, like 19, late 90s Ray Fiennes, is a perfect choice to play John Steed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely great. Uma Thurman is less so. Right. Okay. <laughs> she's definitely not the right person to play John Steed. No, she's <laughs> a bad choice for most films. She's a bad choice for Emma Peel in particular. Um, she's had a rough ride, hasn't she, Uma Thurman? Yeah, she's, she's had she's had a very bad couple of years since like Kill Bill was probably her last hurrah in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, but I mean, like, yeah, the Avengers. It was just it, it kind of had the kooky surrealism of the the TV series because the TV series had kind of like lots of very sixties friendly mm-hmm. surreal moments, but it just kind of threw them all together and all of the strange imagery and expected people just to like that when there wasn't really much of a story to it yeah i remember it being quite impeccably designed but that might be you know it has been 14 years since i saw it so i may not be the right person to judge i'll pick up the criterion uh (laughs) release of it and check it out same year as uh avengers we had the godzilla reboot which i caught um 10 minutes of on itv4 the other day which is where that film belongs on itv4 (laughs) and it was the bit with all the baby godzillas that were kind of hatching out and going Man alive, that film is fucking dreadful. I mean, I'm not really sure what anyone was thinking, but that was a film that had... Jamiroquai's finest moment? Well, <laughs> in, in a stellar a stellar career, it's right up there. Um, with that time, he got headbutted by that photographer. Um, pinnacle, that was. That was pinnacle. Um, but Godzilla was 
a kind of a weird one because that was one of the first films that I can remember that had such aggressive, ridiculous marketing. Mm. Um, um, I mean, obviously it had been that way before, but I mean, in terms of like event marketing, um, it really set the standard. That and Armageddon, which came out in the same year, I yeah. think that both did it. Um, but also the fact that it was a, a failure. It, 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 I don't know if it lost money, but it was certainly uh, um, it did less than expected. Yeah. Um, but critically, it got absolutely mauled. Yeah. But they've especially re- because it was coming on the back of Independence Day. Yes. Which wasn't. I don't think it was a criti- critic's darling, but it was reasonably well received and was a massively successful film. Like yeah. Huge. Certainly by. Uh, Mon standards. It made nearly three hundred million in nineteen ninety five, mm. and you know that was at a time when I think only two or three films had ever managed that. So it was it was you know absolutely astonishingly huge hit. So for their next film, uh, for Roland Emmerich and the guy who wrote, writes them with him, whose name I forget, never mind. Um, for their follow up to kind of not be. On the same level either way, yeah. I'd say it was probably quite a disappointment. But it's been rebooted, isn't it? It's being rebooted by Gareth Edwards, who did... Monsters. Monsters. Which, which was a pretty good film. It was pretty good. Um, a good choice to do that. But, I mean, is there going to be anywhere for him to go with Godzilla? I don't know, really. I think... Because um, Godzilla, even the, even the original ones, are kind of shit. Yeah. I think the first one's pretty pretty great as a sort of monster, a, uh, monster film embodying concerns about you know uh having atomic... a nuclear bomb dropped on you yeah as, as a response to you know hiroshima and nagasaki it's it's pretty it's very entertaining but yeah. obviously it then goes to insane mm. uh he fights lengths. a giant moth yeah i think i think uh, I, honestly i think that'd be the way to do it really if, if you make godzilla the hero because there's Cause only he, yeah because there's only because in the, the remake you know he is and in the original he's a villain and then he became you know, the, the hero as that series went on in Japan. Um, if you just make him the villain, your option is you kill him off at the end, which if you're a studio and you own the property right, the, the, the property to Godzilla, you don't want to do. Because, mm. <laughs> you know, that's like Indiana Jones getting shot in the head, like in the last frame. I would, I would have loved that in King <laughs> of Crystal Skull. In the first frame, <laughs> you get shot in the head and then, you know, <laughs> there's a two-hour inquest into what happened. I'd like to think that the... Uh, that Crystal Skull is a real film up until he gets in the fridge and then he dies and then the rest of the film is his last so it's, it's like Taxi Driver. <laughs> you know, like, is 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 it the... Is, did this really happen or is this the kind of... Uh, the dying thought of an idiot who yeah. locked himself in a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I remember when I was growing up, there was always this concern about locking yourself in a fridge in a tip. Yeah. Um, and there was like, well, like 10 kids every year are killed by being locked in fridges. 10 archaeologists every year I know. <laughs> well, it, it did him all right. Are saved by fridges. Yeah. I think that was probably um, the point at which George Lucas, I mean, as, as much as, the, you know, p- perception of the man had, had slid down the scale like a wet shit, yeah. um, he then came out and said two things in the last year. One that was that Empire Strikes Back was the worst of the Star Wars films, and the second one was the bit with the fridge really could have happened. <laughs> so we researched it, and that's okay. Um, which, you know, kind of just it just sends it into kind of surreal territory, really, when someone's trying to justify... I think he probably asked Yoda. 
He probably did. Yoda could have fit in the freezer compartment at the top, <laughs> even on a little fridge, not even on a big one. I imagine that George Lucas just populates his house with his CGI creations. He like has them all as holograms, and they keep telling him how every decision he makes is great. It's amazing. It can't be any worse than having Rick McCullum telling him the exact same thing. Yeah. That guy's a... No, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, in terms of bombs, which is one last one to mention, um, it's a surprising one because there seems to have been so many high-profile bombs, stuff like uh, Cutthroat Island and Ishtar and things like that, but the actual film that's lost the most money, um, which is having its um, title challenged by John Carter, mm. is uh, Sahara, the film made in what year, Ed? 2005. Uh, starring Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz and where is he now, Steve Zahn. <laughs> oh, he's on Treme, isn't he, Steve Zahn? Yeah, he's on Zahn. Treme. Being but wonderful on he, Treme. He was ubiquitous, wasn't he, in the kind of uh, late 90s, early 1000s. When, when you needed someone to be a bit zany in a film. Uh, get Steve Zany. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, or a bit stoned. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but that film, and I don't really know why, uh, lost a hell of a lot of money. I know, it's weird, isn't it? It's... Because it's not outrageously bad. Yeah, and it's not one of those films that was fraught with production difficulties, was it? Not especially. I think... I mean, the the thing that people cite for it is that Clive Custler got into a lawsuit with the people making it. The writer of the film, is that right? He wrote the the book. Yeah. But that was only afterwards because he said that it was loss of earnings because the film so badly affected the reputation of his books that it would hurt future sales. Right. So that couldn't have hurt the film when it came out. I can only just assume that that was the year, that was the point at which everyone just said, right, we've had it with Matthew McConaughey, we're not going to watch any films <laughs> with him in. I've, I've, Matthew McConaughey's early career is is fascinating, because mm. he made, I think he made back-to-back, he made Lone Star and Days of Confused all the other way around. It would be Days of Confused, it's 93, Lone Star's about 94, 95. Yeah, 94. Uh, and then since then, I can't think of a single interesting film he's been in. I actually wrote an article about this um, a while ago. It's almost was... as if I knew that. Hmm? God, it's almost as if I knew that. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Uh, in which I was just looking at his choices he's got of his films coming out. Um, you've got um, Killer Joe, in which he plays a crook cop who kills people for money. I didn't know he was in that. Dark. Yeah, he's the star. Ah. Um, William Freakin film. Dark comedy. It's going to be freaking awesome. <laughs> He's in Magic Mike, the Steven Soderbergh, Channing Tatum uh, stripper comedy. Stripper comedy, right? Which is the crazy. It, it, it like it doesn't seem like that outrageous an idea, but when you just think of all those people involved, it kind of becomes crazier and crazier the more you think about it. I've got a bit of a soft spot for Channing Tatum. I think he's quite good. I think he's quite good. He's very funny in uh, Twenty One Jump Street. I think if they can marry, uh, have the same tone for Magic Mike, I think it'd be quite good. Okay, cool. Um, and then. What was the other one? There's a... Oh, Bernie, the film he's done with Richard Linklater, reuniting after um, 20 years, near enough. Um, What's Bernie about? Bernie is a film starring Jack Black as... It's based on a real story of a you, guy... You've lost me at Jack ...who Black. became... He, he, was, he was a gay man who became a companion of an elderly widow and kind of did everything for her and eventually killed her because he got so sick of her. And the widow is played by Shirley MacLaine in the film. Right. And then the DA... Uh, played by Matthew McConaughey is uh, comes to try and arrest him and then but everyone kind of views the killer as a hero in this small town because they're all like well I would have killed her earlier right. so it's this kind of do Matthew McConaughey and Jack Blay then fall in love 
Um, I'd hope so. Right, okay. They they both seem like lonely characters. Um, but it's it's got some very, very positive reviews in the States, and it seems like a very uh, strange comedy. Um, so I think, it, uh, just in terms of the stuff that Matthew McConaughey has been doing, it seems like he's veering into sort of more interesting territory. I think possibly because uh, the romantic comedy scripts have been drying up since... Uh, and for a while there really wasn't a romantic comedy script he wouldn't do. Yeah. And they also, like, there was a lot of diminishing returns. So I think he's probably realised that the way to go forward to ensure he still, like, gets to make films is to aim for sort of more interesting fare. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey is the uh, official voice of the American Beef Council. (laughs) Is he really? Yes, it used to be Robert Mitchum. And the, uh, do you know what the slogan of the American, Be- I'm not sure if it's the American Beef Council, it's their name, <laughs> but, you know, basically the people who are the board for beef in yeah. America. Yeah. Do you know what the catchphrase is? The no. slogan is, um, beef, it's what's for dinner. Nice. And Robert Mitchum said that for years, and now it's Matthew McConaughey. That's a step down. They- <laughs> well, yeah, not even a step sideways, is it? It's, <laughs> you know, Robert Mitchum was a, a dude, and, and yeah, Matthew McConaughey. I prefer it if it was Tom Waits or someone. Yeah, Beef, it's what dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like hitting a pan in the background. <laughs> It'd be great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could just spiral off into a load of uh, Tom Waits impressions. Yeah, let's not. We won't. Instead, we're going to talk about something which we talk about an awful lot um, between us. It's something that is um, kind of obvious um, and uh, you can't really talk about the modern blockbuster without getting into this. And um, it's something that, uh, I don't know who coined this phrase, um, but it's about the, the devolution of the blockbuster. And basically it goes from the idea that in the olden days, in the good old days, uh, blockbuster films were entertainment first and foremost, but they operated on the pretense of being a kind of like a roller coaster thrill ride of being... Um, uh, a story told maybe with special effects um, but still featured interesting characters and, you know, uh, ideas and, and a style that told a story in a particular way to now being about just empty spectacle. And we have seen this devolution from the kind of golden age of the blockbuster, which would include um, Jaws, Star Wars... The Exorcist? Um, depends. Like, I think The Exorcist might be discounted purely because it's technically before the dawn of the modern blockbuster. That's, that one was a huge success, but that's because it played in cinemas for a really long time, whereas okay. Jaws was like huge out of the gate. Right, okay, we'll scrub that one. E.T.? E.T., yeah, E.T. Yeah. Like, we'll go it's with basically that, that golden age of Spielberg, really. Yeah, so we go from that era into the kind of high-concept era, which by today's standards looks like a second golden era of blockbusters mm. but you know really it was that was the step in taking um uh a, a, like a concept and reducing it down to uh you know a really kind of narrow focus um that could appeal to as many people as possible to what we have now uh the modern blockbuster which with few exceptions is uh about uh, creating an event that people will uh, turn up for to think that they will see something good and it's about making as much money in as short a period as you can before anyone notices the film is fucking terrible. So, let's get into the devolution of the blockbuster, Ed, from various viewpoints. 
Sure. Um, I think the first one to talk about is the uh, the principle of filmmaking. If you believe Alfred Hitchcock, uh, who said you need three things to make a, a great film, and they are a good script, a good script, and a good script. Um, I think he's mental because that's the same thing three times. <laughs> you could probably do some actors and a camera. Yeah. Uh, the next two things I'd pick. What but he said is uh, what you need for a good book. <laughs> <laughs> what you need for a good script is <laughs> three good scripts, and one of them will be good. Um, yeah. Um, the writing is something that is really uh, stuck out as has gone massively backwards since we'll, we'll say Jaws. We'll use Jaws as the benchmark for everything, which is unfair because Jaws is one of the best films ever made yeah in my opinion um i'd agree that's because yeah what happens in this podcast is is you know gospel yeah um so using jaws as the benchmark comparing jaws against something like avatar um makes jaws looks like look like all about eve or something in terms of how good its script is Mm. oh yeah um so what what can you say about the devolution of writing in um blockbuster cinema um, I think it's, it's there's two kind of mo- ways to take that. One is sort of characters, what characters mean to those films, and one is what dialogue means to those films. And both have devolved to a great extent. Um, in terms of dialogue, dialogue has gone from being something that drives the story, that illustrates things about the characters, that's like witty and, and fun, something that's in a lot of cases barely functional mm-hmm. um the worst example of this and i'm sure we'll talk about these films a lot of the transformers films yeah where they may as well be silent films for the amount that they'd be, en- they'd be a lot better if they were <laughs> for the amount that those that their dialogue uh impacts on anything like nothing that Charlotte LaBeouf's character says in those films um illustrates anything about him as a person if he has any sort of inner life none of it's funny none of it's or particularly interesting some of it's racist some of it's racist all of it's sexist yeah um and so the the dialogue you know there's a there's a clear devolution from you know jaws which is you know it's it's influenced by the movement in the 70s towards sort of in some ways, sort of studies of American men, because you got the three sort of different images of masculinity who are all thrown together, mm-hmm. and you get those great scenes where they're all like sat around comparing scars and things like that. So there are there's just scenes which you know crackle with fun dialogue. Yeah, um, and uh, what sticks out for me in Jaws, sorry to interrupt there, is sure. is um, the scenes between Chief and his wife. Mm. Um, and then there's that one line that always sticks out when he says, "Do you want to get drunk and fall around?" And he's just like, "Yeah." I mean, that, that, those little character notes. Yeah. Now there's just no time for those things, and like you know, the bit where he's pulling faces with his kid. Yeah. It's such a lovely touch. It makes him feel like an ordinary bloke, which mm. is the idea. Yeah. Um, against the kind of the slightly more stereotyped college boy in Dreyfus and the salty sea dog in in um, Shaw. Um, but now I think the, what, like, I think you'll probably get to this from talking about dialogue in the modern blockbusters. Ninety percent of all dialogue is exposition, mm. and if you if it you think to, think back about exposition in Jaws, I mean the, the story is so lean that there really does is not much need for exposition. But if you think about even something that's quite good, like Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, how much exposition is there in those films? It's, yeah, you could you could probably make a, a supercut. 90 minute per film that's just exposition but in that case the difference is that 
they're trying to establish a whole world and there's lots of concepts in that that you have to introduce the audience to. Something like, you know, in a lot of modern blockbusters, the concepts are really simple. Mm -hmm. Giant robots come to Earth, fight... You know that's that's Transformers summed up. But they over they over complicate they over complicate it with MacGuffins and over explain everything. It's all exhibition. But not only that, sometimes it just feels like placeholder dialogue, as if they're using the first draft of the script where they were kind of plotting out the beats, mm. of what was going to happen in the story. And they'll say, "We'll fill this out later." Uh, it's, it's just like uh, here he says, "Oh hell no," or something. You know, yeah. it's just, and it, you know we'll think of something better later. Except they never got to that stage because they just kind of like. Right, okay, have you finished that first draft? Yes, we start shooting tomorrow. What? Yeah. Or, have you finished it? No, we start shooting tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, that has been a devaluation of writing in blockbusters to the extent that, literally, as you just said, there are films that get made for a huge amount of money that start shooting without a finished script. Um, or well, We've got some examples of that, haven't we? The, yeah, the two big examples for me, I think you may have a different one, are the second and third parts of the Caribbean films. And that was a massive undertaking. You know, that's two huge scale films, sequel to a very successful original, that they started shooting without a finished script to work from. And uh, in, in, in an industry where a minute's worth of filming will probably cost tens of thousands of dollars yeah, where you're lucky if you get like a minute shot a day yeah um certainly on something on that scale and where a lot of it's going to be done in post-production and stuff so and you can feel that in both of those films because those the plots of those films go off and all over the place you know it's like they're trying to put so much stuff in a one and not and not sort of being able to see what what's important for the character, what's important for the story, and just throwing it all in there at once. It's, it's the difference, isn't it, between plot and story. Mm. It's all plot and no yeah. story. Exactly, and there's no sort of momentum to it. Moment, momentum and things like that, like, that more comes from direction than than script and, and you know, the, the way in which the film's edited. But there is so much, so much plot to get through that it hardly feels like you know any room for the characters to breathe and that's particularly bad because you know jack sparrow is a fun character mm. you know and that's the reason why the first pirates film is as good as it is because it's got a very fun central performance and that other film that you referred to there that i mentioned that started shooting without a finished script was both the iron man films mm. um more specifically iron man 2 i think iron man 1 did um and i kind of think that in both those cases parts of the caribbean and iron man is there something to saying that the casting of robert downey jr and johnny depp kind of bails them out in terms of not having a finished script because robert downey jr improvises an awful lot in mm -hmm. iron man 2 um and johnny depp's character is kind of his own kind of consuming although the, the more he's in the films the worse they get yeah it's kind of like in the first one it's it's the equivalent of, you know, a little bit of spice in yeah. a mission. It's like Han meal. Solo, yeah. isn't he? He's not the main character, but he, he kind of is. He's the one you, you, you want to be. Wish was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then when you get that wish, it's like, oh. Yeah. Wish he wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> I want Chewie to be the main character. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that's definitely somewhere where script writing's been um, undervalued. Um, in terms of dialogue... You've kind of talked about that. What about um, story or character? Character, I think it's gone from the stage where, I mean, you don't need to have 
for a decent blockbuster to have a character who is well developed. I mean, the example of a character in a great blockbuster who isn't very well developed is Indiana Jones, who mm-hmm. is really. And this is I'm repeating uh, stuff that was said by uh, the guy who does the Red Letter Media yeah, videos. Yeah. He did one on uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, which was very informative, and I recommend people check that out. Um, in which he talks about how Indiana Jones in the original films and certainly in Raiders is kind of a flawless character. You know, he's a a tenured professor who goes off and has adventures. You know, he's uh, always getting scrapes, getting out, but he doesn't have like an inner life or anything but he's not supposed to the whole point is he's this kind of iconic figure who struts around and does amazing things um what's happened now is people have taken the indistinctiveness of that and stripped away the idea of trying to make these characters iconic and Mm. just plopped them in and been like you don't need to be iconic you don't even really need to be a functioning human being you just need to be here to react to spectacle which is all that say uh rosie huntington whiteley is that her name the the girl in trans the third transformers films who was introduced to us by a close-up of her ass yeah but literally in the third transformers film there is a shot of her just walking through downtown chicago as fighting's going on looking up in awe and that's that's her role that's to an extent is what shia labeouf's character's role is in the film they're they're barely characters they're just there like the 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 most agency that sam witwicky has in the entire transformers trilogy is he is acts as our way of introduce of introducing the transformers to like the modern world because they for some reason huddle around him Mm. um if if in terms of character if character is defined by action and mm. is defined by uh personality can you describe sam witwicky witwicky's character um, in any way other than saying he's a massive prick. He's whiny. He's a whiny prick. That'd be it. There's nothing... There's two, there's two modes. Yeah, and he's he's punching above his weight. That's oh, yeah. about it, isn't Massively. it? There's, there's nothing really... Is there anything to his character beyond that? No, he's a bit lovelorn in the first one. Mm. That's it. The second one, he's not. And the third one, he's also not. third one, he's looking for a job, but... That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, for about half an hour, he yeah, spends for looking for a job. Yeah, a large part of the film. Yeah, weird. Um, so, yeah. But I then, mean, again, his prickishness comes into that. Yeah, and that's why he doesn't get any jobs. Um, but if you, we compare that again to Jaws, um, all the characters in it, as much as they feel, for example, the, the mayor character, he has a, a clearly defined goal in, in, you know, not want to get kind of script writing 101, but he has a clearly defined goal as a character in the film. Um, and he will try as much as he can to do that, you know, keep the beaches open, keep the money coming in, keep Amity uh, a, you know, a, a successful place over the 4th of July weekend. Um, but when it kind of goes wrong for him, you can see the effects on a human person. Mm. Whereas... He realises what an awful thing he has done. And that he's responsible. Yeah. In the same way that he would be responsible if everything went well and he could take all the credit, which is what he's kind of used to. Um, and, you know, they're all real people, as yeah. much as some of them might not be as clearly defined as others. They're all real people. Yeah. And, you know, Robert Shaw's character is pushing it. Yeah. But he's, he's so much most... fun. Yeah. That it doesn't matter. And with dialogue, the way he has it, I mean, I'm sure we, we will talk about the Indianapolis um, uh, speech, which is that there's two bits in Jaws that stick out for me. That If they were in a modern blockbuster today, 
people would say it was some kind of like modern art uh, installation piece. There's one bit where they cross they cross the island on the ferry. The car pulls up, gets on the ferry. It's a static camera locked off, and then the ferry crosses to the island, and then the car drives away. That shot lasts about five minutes, and it's just two characters talking, locked off, and that's it. And now you you would never see that today. You might see a long shot in a in a blockbuster today, but it'll always be some kind of effect shot or some kind of like elaborate action uh, piece. But you never see that today. And and the second one is the the whole uh, the scene on the boat at the end. That scene must be about ten twelve minutes long from the moment they start talking about the scars and the drinking and the show me the way to go home stuff to you know him talking about the shark attack and every single bit of that just reeks of character. Every single line in it reinforces or re- reinforces something we know or is or uh, deepens something we didn't know about each character. And each character has their own voice and they all spark off of each other mm-hmm. and they all you know there's sort of tension to it and you know there's a sense of one-upmanship because starting with the scar thing but then how that in turn becomes like a male bonding sort of thing because they feel they have this in common and then drinking and all that sort of thing and everything about that you know sort of flows naturally whereas a lot of a lot of the time in modern blockbusters the way in which the characters are written feels very mechanic mechanical Mm -hmm. um in that it's about getting them from one action set piece to the next as with, quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. To the extent that in um, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, there's the bit where the John Turturro voiced ancient robot teleports them to the other side of the world to cut out, just literally because that's where they need to be next. Mm. But doesn't teleport them, and I don't, I'm pretty sure this isn't explained in the film, doesn't teleport them next to where they need to be he teleports <laughs> them several hundred miles away from where they need and to be and they've got to like walk it haven't they uh as far as transformers walk yeah, yeah. i mean they drive it right but it's still you know it's that sort of thing we think that is the most uh obvious example of the writer's hand being felt or the 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 machinations of the, the plot being literally the film ends in egypt they need to go to egypt how do they go to Egypt? They teleport there. And that there is a worse example of that in the same film, and I'll say this now, Transformers 2, Revenge of the Fallen, is, is I think, one of the worst films ever made. Yeah, I mean, pretty... Transformers 3 is very bad, but Transformers 2 is a lot worse. Yeah. Transformers 2 is, is, is repellent in every way. But there's a bit of the kind of halfway through where a robot is a woman. Mm. Oh yeah, the yeah. robot t- transforms into a into a completely realistic woman who Sam tries to bang, and then just just to get that bit of plot out. But then it's like, you mean the robots can be people? Why are they disguising themselves as fucking cars? Yeah, or why metal pumas? Why what? haven't they, uh, you know, copied the body of someone who works for the? Pre- why haven't they copied the president? You know, yeah. Why don't they just be people? Yeah, and why what? Exactly, Why especially be because a apparently, fire the, engine? apparently they are completely undetectable as people. <laughs> right. Um, but that was just like, you know, they've opens, written themselves into a corner and just yeah. want to write themselves out. With They've the, clearly been watching Battlestar Galactica and thought, robots as people! Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, but you know... Robots as sexy people. As sexy people, yeah. with the camera crawling right up the arse, <laughs> up, and, up until a tail comes out. Which uh, was described once as vaguely Cronenbergian, which I think you know is that's an insult to Cronenberg. <laughs> it's pretty. Uh, it's like it's a very weird 
it's one of the most uh, obvious examples of misogyny in the Transformers films is that uh, beautiful women are apparently traitorous, <laughs> traitorous robots that prey on young men. Yeah, well, we've all been there. Um, so yeah, I mean that we've been pretty conclusive about writing. Is there any um, modern blockbusters you can think of that have very strong writing? Um, the only one that leaps out uh, initially, is, is, as I started earlier, was uh, the Avengers, purely because the Avengers has like a sense of fun to it in the dialogue, and there are scenes in which essentially Joss Whedon, who obviously has a background in ensemble television and, and the best often the best parts of episodes of Buffy would be when the characters are all thrown in the room and they're trying to figure something out and they all just kind of spark off of each other. Those are some of the most fun parts of the Avengers. It's just, you know, he get he has this big ensemble of these characters who all have very disparate ideas of what the best thing is to do and they all just they're at loggerheads. Mm-hmm. And that's that in terms of like, you know, recent blockbusters, that's the one that's the most that boasts the most interesting writing, really. Um, also, uh, it, just, it just occurred to me, we were talking about films not having finished scripts being a bad thing, and it generally is, but there are some examples I can think of, of films which started shooting without finished scripts and ended up making very good product, particularly the last two Bourne films, right. which were written that way. They had, like, an outline, but as they went through, you know, they kind of changed it and chopped it around, and that fits in the kind of the, the choppy, uh, kinetic... Uh, aesthetic of those films um the other one the last word on scripts is um about avatar kind of want to talk about avatar because uh that film um which i really disliked um but it featured it it got it received nearly unanimous critical acclaim but in every instance of its critical acclaim it would all it would always say well the script's not up to much but everything else is so amazing Mm. that um you know it kind of you overlook that the world they create is so rich and interesting that it doesn't matter about the fact the script is pocahontas mixed with you know um the smurfs or whatever but like it almost felt to me that the script has kind of ceased to matter Mm. um in those kind of films is like it it doesn't really you can just get away with it if you, as long as you throw enough money at the screen to like Titanic as well is another one that I mean, I think he won an Oscar for best screenplay for no, that. No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't, did he? No, oh. he's never won for writing. But he was nominated. I'm pretty sure for Titanic. Not for writing, no. Oh man, I really should research that. Um, so yeah, he it's won. Right, the- he won three Oscars for it, but it was editing, director, and picture. Right. So he won the best Oscar for writing. <laughs> um, but no, he, uh, that film as well had a terrible, terrible script. Yeah. But you know critically acclaimed it's just like does does it even matter anymore if as long as you've got enough kind of oh look there's a giant monkey with a banana on its head what the uh i think with titanic it gets by because of the strengths of the two central performances i think if when people buy into the relationship between jack and rose it's not because of the terrible words coming out of their mouth it's because of the kind of the the depth of feeling that kate winslet and leonardo dicaprio bring to those roles Mm -hmm. i think you know with people who couldn't bring that to it that film would not been as successful as it is like that same script with worse actors doesn't would have been on the hallmark channel yeah exactly um whereas you know i think with with avatar is that in in a lot of the cases what you you see is there is some other factor that compensates for the lack like be it empty spectacle like you know avatar the script's not great 
um i like it as spectacle but you know i don't it's not a film that i've really thought much of since seeing it mm. um but you know the visuals of it and the set pieces are are very well done but th- essentially the story is you know move along this very linear line and kind of drop these set pieces in in any more or less any order with the biggest one at the end yeah um and that's more or less it titanic you know you've got the performances to kind of anchor it all really and to, to give weight to P- that pun intended story. yeah um to give to to give any sort of emotional depth to that film there isn't a huge amount to it but what there is i think comes solely from the performances there i think you see that in a lot of blockbusters it's either the act like i mean like the iron man films or the pirates films it's the actors who they get they go yeah we said before the podcast i mean um there was talk that disney were freaking out when they started seeing early footage of uh johnny depp being jack sparrow but Mm -hmm. imagine those films with a straight a straight, not. I'm not saying Johnny Depp is homosexual, but a, you know, an actor playing that role deadly straight, that yeah. would have been. It wouldn't be films. It would. It be, would be films. It would be Cutthroat Island too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, like Iron Man, the wrong person as Tony Stark would make that film. You know, it would just wouldn't work. A because I'm, you know, as you say, Tony um, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, you know, is, is an improviser. He enjoys like coming up with stuff on the fly and trying things out. Mm. But you know, without his sort of natural kind charisma of, yeah kind of that sort of va- vaguely dickish charisma because like that that's the thing about tony stark is he's kind of an unlikable prick at the start and then he becomes you know he, he becomes humbled by his experiences but without that magnetism he wouldn't be pun intended hot. no pun intended. <laughs> they're never they're never puns intended with me um he, he wouldn't be a fun character you know a boring actor in that film in that role would have made that film nowhere near as entertaining, therefore nowhere near as successful. It's the, the, there is always some facet of these films that you know compensates for the fact that maybe they don't have the strongest script. Mm. So that script's covered. Yep. Um, next up, uh, I want to talk about uh, the devolution of um, the blockbuster in terms of uh, aesthetic and film style and uh, film grammar which is something i want to talk about yeah um but what have you noticed about the devolution of the blockbuster via the through the prism of uh aesthetic go okay um well i a, a while ago i saw um a video essay called chaos cinema by a guy called matthias stork i just uh would uh, credit him it's a very good essay in which he looks at the devolution of visual style in action cinema so oh, because there's a very big overlap certainly nowadays between a- action and blockbuster uh, he talks about the fact that um that over time there's been this movement away from very clear construction of sequ- action sequences which is where you establish the space in which something's happening you have relatively few shots but each one serves the purpose of establishing what's happening uh, at the start of the essay he uses the chase scene one of the chase scenes from bullet which indicates that you know shows that okay there's two cars they're going against each other one slightly behind the other one of them's you know got a shotgun and he's shooting at the other one and you know things like that um and then contrast that against you sort of more modern ones which favor close framing which means that you can't really orientate yourself in everything it's like sitting too close to the screen mm-hmm. random uh not random but you know fast cutting 
So again, each new shot, which is too close, you know, causes you to be disorientated so you don't really know. Um, and then, you know, like a fast moving camera, often very shaky. And what essentially the idea of the essay puts across is, is that modern uh, action cinema and therefore blockbusters are less about presenting something too clearly than presenting a sense of something to you. They give you an idea that a chase is happening, but it's hard for you to really tell. Usually through the soundtrack and things like that you can you can tell okay a car a car chase is happening but visually it's almost it can be almost completely incoherent yeah and it's it's often cited well mtv always gets the blame as being the mtv music generation and do you think a lot of this um is to do with the fact that uh, the generation of directors who currently hold sway have graduated either from music promos or commercial cinema um, I cinema, think, I mean commercials, that's what I meant. I do, yeah, I think that, obviously it's dangerous to paint with a broad brush because there are very... Maybe Finch is the standout, Finch, Spike Jones. Finch, yeah, Spike Jones, um, Michelle Gondry, you know, these are people who came up through doing music videos and they're, 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 they're all great, they've all made very good uh, films. I just saw the trailer, in fact, for Michelle Gondry's new one, The We and the I, which looks very interesting. Right. Um, which is either a completely straight-laced film about a group of kids going home on the bus on the last day of school, or a sci-fi epic. No one's really sure. Mm. <laughs> um, um, anyway, uh, with with um, their film, their 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 video work, it tended to be they would be they would try and tell a little story in their videos. Like you look at Michelle Gondry's video for Human Nature uh, by Bjork. That's you know a little story about about a bear you know going through the woods and it's creating an atmosphere and, and this little sort of handmade world or you know da funk the uh, spike jones directed daft punk video where did spike jones do that one um pass okay i'm pretty sure he did that one um where he, he is, did the one with the dog walking on that, the street that's da funk all yeah. oh, right okay yeah. yeah um whereas something like someone like michael bay comes from the idea where you try and just fit as many sort of money shots, to use that term again, um, in as little a place as possible to make the product look as awesome as possible. And you can see that as carried over into his uh, visual aesthetic and has become more prevalent over time because what his films have become are literally a series of climaxes mm -hmm. in pretty much every shot is trying to make you think, wow, which of course means that nothing is impressive because it all looks the same. It's like watching a firework display, isn't it? Yeah. Where it's just louder. Exactly. And you know what, you know, and, and the way, in, the way in which to make things really impressive is to just like, is to not have everything like that. I mean, like to go back to uh, a film we talked about earlier, Inception, mm. um, the reason why like the Paris folding in on itself sequence is impressive or the bit where um, Ellen Page's character realises that she's in a dream and everything kind of explodes, is that um, nothing leading up to those points has been of that scale. Yeah, You've seen some visually impressive things, but there's also lots of scenes where it's just people in a warehouse talking to each other, and at no point does the camera kind of like zoom around them and make everything they're saying look really impressive or does it kind of use lots of low angle shots to make them all look really heroic. It just goes, okay, this is a scene in which people are going to talk they're going to, you know, explain things about the plot. It doesn't need to be whizzy and, you know, and like kinetic because mm. it's not, you know, it's important in plot terms, but in terms of uh, 
impact it doesn't really need to have a massive effect on you um whereas so it paces the effect sequences yeah, and set pieces exactly so when they happen it kind of means something another example to go back to jaws um the reason why the uh contra zoom you know vertigo shot mm-hmm. that they do on roy scheider's face uh when he realizes that uh someone has been attacked by a shark or thinks he realizes someone has been attacked by a shark is that there's no real trickery like that in the rest of the film up until that point yeah and um because you know spielberg does that thing where he hides the cuts by having people walk across in different colored clothing and things like that it feels really you've had this sequence of cuts which feels completely seamless and then suddenly you get this really expressionistic technique and it has a big impact, mm. you know, and and so that's and it's not replicated again later in the film, is it? There's not no. anything like that again. No, exactly. And so, you know, that's that's the thing with the uh, the you know the MTV aesthetic or, or whatever you want to call it, the music video aesthetic, is if it's all just trying to be impressive and climactic, then then the moments that are meant that then the actual moments that are meant to be visually impressive just feel sort of run of the mill they feel like everything else in the film yeah i think there's there's something in that uh what you said about jaws with that kind of contra zoom um that that for the character mm. is the the most important moment because that's the the point where he his worst fears are confirmed and he's right and he didn't want to be right yeah um and everything else changes after that um but in terms of using a stylistic flourish for absolutely no reason whatsoever, I would like to um, charge Zack Snyder with Crimes Against Humanity in that sense because his films are full, literally every scene of meaningless stylistic flourishes and m- most specifically it's the speeding up and slowing down of action mm. for no reason. Now... I'm not saying it was always this way, but when you do something like that, it has a purpose. It has um, a, a tonal use, or it has a um, a kind of a stylistic uh, impact, like the, the the one in Jaws. But the reasons behind the slowing down and, and speeding up of Zack Snyder's action is for no other reason than he thinks it looks good. Yeah, and that. I cannot watch it as someone who has studied film at a degree level and say why he has done those apart from it looks cool. Yeah, there's no meaning behind it. No. Or it adds nothing to those particular scenes other than being a stylistic flourish. Um, and if you, he does it all the fucking time, which makes it worse. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Watchmen, it was bad. I mean, 300 is... It's, it's pretty bad in 300. I mean, it slows down just to watch a detail of someone's leg being hacked off or whatever. Um, and, I mean, in, in 300... It's, no, it's novel the first time you see it. Yeah. When you realise that's kind of the only trick he's got. Yeah. Um, it's all right to be a one-trick pony if your trick's good. Mm-hmm. Um, Stand-up Ricky Gervais. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Um, but, uh, but, 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 yeah. Um, in 300, you know, his visual style for that, which, you know, he succeeds in aping the style of the comic book yeah. by, you know, how the film's, the, the, the kind of the, the colour palette and the, the way he uses CGI to bring the comic book to life. Great, you've achieved something there with a stylistic flourish. But then all of the the other stuff, you know, doesn't really mean anything. And, and, and this is um, where I think film grammar is being slightly eroded 
Um, and it's interesting that the people who were making the the kind of cool action films in the 70s, people like John Carpenter and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and stuff, grew up watching Howard Hawks and John Ford, um, people who knew how to make a fucking movie properly, whereas um, today's, it's just do it quick, do it loud, and do it big. And that seems to be where the aesthetic of, of, of uh, blockbuster cinema has gone. Mm. I do think that's in part linked to the business model because the way in which blockbusters have changed, even in the last 10 years, is that the opening weekend has become more and more important to mm. the overall success of a film. Like even in the day of Jaws and Star Wars, the idea was that a film would be released and it would play in cinemas for a considerable length of time. Like, you know, when, I mean, like, Star Wars, uh, I imagine, was probably playing in cinemas for, like, over a year or so after it opened. Same with Jaws. And, like, all the most successful films ever made up until that point became that way because they would run in cinemas for literally years. Yeah, and there was no home video either or... Exactly. So if you wanted to see a film, you could only see it there or if you were, you know, you had your own projector because you were a filmmaker, you know. (laughs) You had your own screening room and you could, like, show it and you had all the reels. Um, but um, over time, it's become a case of you need to make sure that the opening weekend is as big as possible uh, because in, like, three weeks, another film's going to come along and then that'll be it. And the the, the generally accepted rule is that a, f- a blockbuster will make roughly a third of its entire gross in its opening weekend. And is that gross including home video and everything? Uh, no, just in terms of its theatrical, theatrical release. Right, okay. So it's it's becomes, instead in of becoming a marathon, it becomes a sprint. You mm-hmm. know, Films aren't intended to be uh, seen over like many many months because of the way in which both the in the way in which you know cinema exhibition has changed which is you you know keep a big turnover of stuff that's in the screens and so it becomes about trying to create as many spectacular moments that you can put in the ads and that people can kind of enthuse about but not focusing necessarily on like the the more intangible bits like the storytelling the stuff that in the past would have got people to recommend that they go and see a film even if that film had been out for like two months mm-hmm. you know and so that i think there's a kind of a, a business di- a, a shift in the uh way in which business is done that that has led to that change so it's about creating an event um, and building up and to a it. a short-term event as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, Mark Kermode criticised Titanic, uh, Titanic Transformers 2 and 3 very much for this, in that, you know, they made Transformers 2, and it was just like, yeah, yeah, and it was a loud publicity campaign. It was huge. I was in Cannes at the time when uh, Transformers 2 was there, and they had giant fucking Transformers just in the street. Um, and, that, you know, it was, it was a huge thing, and they would, you make as much noise about it as they can. It comes out... Everyone kind of uh, sees it. It doesn't matter what... There's not enough time for bad word of mouth to spread. They come out. The film is received negatively. Um, Afterwards, one or two of the uh, stars or people involved apologises for the quality of the film, uh, as Sheila Booth did and Michael Bay, I think, did as well. Michael Bay did as well, yeah. Um, So it's almost as if they were just trying to do it as... You know, so people wouldn't notice. They do it as much... And then they do the whole same thing again for Transformers 3. They make as much noise about it as they put... No, I can't, don't think anyone's come out yet until it was dog shit, have they? Not yet. No, they will. 
once their contractual obligation has lapsed, yeah. uh, you know, you know, when they're not allowed to say anything negative do about a it. Cross. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it was. It's. It is about. Um, it's a smashing grab, essentially, isn't it? It's, it's just, yeah, it's exactly what it is. But you keep doing it. Yeah, and people keep falling for it. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, people are always impressed by shiny things, mm. and you know, the, whoever makes the loudest bang on the screen is just gonna. You and know. even when people admit it's terrible, you know, a slight bit of contrition seems to be enough. Because, like, the third Transformers film made, like, $70 million less, roughly, than the second one, even factoring in, like, 3D and stuff. So it probably actually sold less tickets than the first one did. Mm. That's still a shitload of money that it made. Yeah, the third one is the fourth most successful film of all time. Yeah. Not, uh, not adjusted for... For inflation yeah. and worldwide. But even so, it's still quite a lot. That is a lot, yeah. Yeah, so there's that kind of sense of... Uh, also, you get to a certain scale with these things and it doesn't matter. Like, unless... You know, un- unless the previous film in a series is so utterly reprehensible to everyone who sees it, then in, in kind of the way that um, Batman and Robin did for the Batman franchise, because, you know everyone across the board despised that film so much mm. that they didn't make another one for seven years and they got an entirely different director, entirely different people involved to essentially rescue the franchise and, and start it up again in a new way. Uh, unless you have something like that, it's almost impossible to imagine like franchise films like that or failing. Or if it's a franchise that's operating at a lower budget level, like the Saw films, which never earned as much as those films to begin with. So when it started dropping off, it became noticeable and they eventually kind of put it on ice. Right. Um, yeah. So it's it's about a smash and grab, like you say. Mm. Um, the other thing that... Uh, the kind of last thing in talking about the devolution of Blockbuster is the development um, of the high-concept idea mm. um, and the reduction of that um, where we see now. I mean, when high-concept came out, I think it was a... a term coined by the late don simpson i think um producer of top gun and and just fast living drug horse um i mean i don't know how much you know about don simpson but he was a fucking crazy guy he used to like um only wear jeans black jeans but he'd only ever wear them once because he said that if they were washed they wouldn't technically be black anymore which is, which is brilliant. And he, he died with a cocktail of drugs in his system that would have made John Belushi blush. <laughs> um, uh, made, would have made James Belushi blush as well. Um, but he um, coined the phrase high concept when he talked about um, making films that had a premise and uh, a, a viewpoint that was so simple you could uh, explain it to someone very simply with a sentence. Or he, he said that the, the idea to fit in the palm of your hand. So the most... The classic example of it is um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins. That sentence says everything you need to know about the film, and er- anyone can get into it. It's accessible, and it's that's what high concept is. Now, since then, now they they seem like that seems like a golden age of high concept twins. Um, are they making a twin sequel with the, um, so- supposedly uh, triplets with Eddie Murphy? Brilliant, great idea. Um, can't see why that would be shit. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So high concept has come from that—a very simple idea, accessible to as many people as possible—to now being boiled down to Spider-Man. 
Mm. Or Battleship. Battleship. Now, I have a I have a problem with Battleship because Battleship is based on the popular board game Battleship, although it isn't. No, really, there's no need for it to be. Um, it's just a property that they happen to own the rights to. Yeah, I mean, I've not seen the film. I haven't either. Um, but I'm pretty sure that no one is attacked with giant white and red plastic pegs. Um, nothing in the marketing suggests that that happens. No grid references. No, they do. apparently there is a sequence in which they do grid references. Wow. As but, a nod. Yeah, there's no need for it to be Battleship. an adaptation of Battleship. And I wrote a piece about this ages ago, and I said, well, if that's an adaptation of Battleship, then Usual Suspects is an adaptation of Guess Who. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's, it's getting to the point now where it's kind of ridiculous that we're having, you know, the Stretch Armstrong movie has been mooted for a long time. Um, uh, what's the little to- toy cars that have been... Um, Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels has been mooted as a as a film for a long Monopoly. time. Monopoly. Monopoly the movie. <laughs> I mean, what's Monopoly the movie going to be like? I hope it's going to be a scathing dissection of capitalism. I think so, but with a man in a shoe, <laughs> in a, riding a dog. I mean, what what? Yeah, is it going to be like? Is the film of Monopoly going to be really fun for like half an hour, and then it becomes really tiresome, paying really high rents, and or then your dad really storms off because he's like been knocked out, or everyone gets really bitter and angry. Yeah, I've never I've never played Monopoly and it ended well. I've never finished a game of Monopoly. I've finished a few games of Monopoly. I've, I'm sure time. I've played ones that have lasted weeks because everyone sits down to do it, but yeah. never actually finished one because eventually people drop out just because it's boring and it's like oh. that's it well maybe the, the film will it'll be like an endurance piece that's like lasts like 40 minutes or is like um is uh It'll the longest up. is the longest day an adaptation of risk <laughs> <laughs> i'd watch risk the movie because i like risk the board game um it'd just be loads of people concentrating on an intense conflict on papua new guinea trying to <laughs> trying to hold australia um but yeah i mean it's getting to the point now where it is it's getting to the point where the the concepts are becoming idiotic or they're becoming so simplistic that uh, the product is never the end product is never going to be um it is so limited in how good it can be yeah the best you can hope for is better than expected yeah i mean better that's better than it has any right to be which is such a low critical bar to clear i mean pirates of the caribbean has that doesn't it? But it I mean, cleared it by quite a big leap. It did. I mean, everyone was like, "Well, they're basing it on a th- on a ride," but then mm. they kind of didn't. It was just it was uh, it was almost as if like the battleship thing. And just they kind of own the property, and yeah. the name means something to somebody. But I mean, that's I mean, yeah, Lord of the Rings is a property. Yeah, that's it's true. a million selling billion selling book or whatever. Um, whereas you know, parts of the Caribbean. I mean, is it something that it's is, a shitty ride? <laughs> it's a shitty ride in a theme park that you know most of the world haven't been to. Mm, so yeah. did it matter that it was called Pirates of the Caribbean? I don't think so. It, it was just kind of like something that they owned that they could adapt. Whereas, and I don't think it necessarily had the hugest name recognition, really. Mm. So like, unless people had pointed out to me, I wouldn't have made the connection in my head that it was based on a ride. Yeah. Whereas Battleship, it's kind of hard to escape that. Yeah. And um, they've made, the well, I know they were, I don't know if they had made it, but they were going to make Meccano the movie. <laughs> Really? Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a uh, that was genuinely mooted. Oh, crikey! But I mean, uh, where, where will it end? Ed? Where will it end? Well, I think it's it's again, it's all uh, it's all this is all part of the devolution of it, which is you've moved from a point where the way in which you kind the the important thing in selling a film was 
you know, the story, and maybe the story was a familiar one. Obviously, Jaws was based on a very successful book, as was The Godfather, as was The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. But essentially, you were trying to sell people on the story because maybe not everyone's read, you know, Jaws by Peter Benchley. Um, To went beyond that to kind of be about who's in it, which was a big thing for a long time, who was the star. Um, That became the deciding factor. And now it's got to the point where the human element has almost been removed from whether or not a film is successful or whether or not it's greenlit. But again, you know, we've harped on about Transformers a lot. The the human elements of Transformers, and also this is true of Battleship, are so interchangeable that it doesn't matter who stars in those films. You know, it's just through chance that Shia LaBeouf has been in the star... It's been the star of those three massively successful films. It mm. could have been any like young relatively unknown actor in hollywood at the time he just happened to get it ditto you know as proved by the fact they replaced megan fox with rosie huntington white huntington whiteley um you know it could have just been any lingerie model you know what did it, what did it matter if you can introduce her with a shot of her ass yeah exactly you know as long as she looks pretty and she can react to the things that aren't there which and she, she fair, barely does yeah rosie huntington whiteley kind of doesn't she just looks straight ahead as if someone's saying hey look here yeah, she she. What is that? She's no Hello Mirror, is she? No, I think that's that's an understatement of the century, <laughs> really. Um, but yeah, that that kind of is the the only way it can. I don't I don't know if it can devolve further than that, unless it just it gets to the point where people are excited by abstract concepts. It's just like, and then has it devolved or has just, it evolved yeah, into just, abstract blockbuster? Well, visually, there's a level of an abstraction in like the visual style of a lot of those things, which you know points that way. If it's mm. just you just watch a film that's, I don't know, like a Kenneth, Ang- I know, like a Stan Brackage short or something, and it's just you know a load of abstract imagery that creates the sense of fun. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that's the ultimate devolution of it. It's, weirdly, we suddenly come round the other way, and suddenly everyone's watching abstract f- cinema. So, yeah, I mean, so there's hope for us, yeah. If the blockbuster devolves into uh, abstract cinema like Mothlight or Dirk Jarman's Blue or something, just uh, that's the only way it can go. But, I mean, it's, it is kind of depressing. I mean, mm. it is odd that this year we've got... Um, we do have, the you know, the blockbusters with, with pedigree. Yeah. Um, but like you say, like when you said to kind of kick off this podcast, it feels like that's the pinnacle mm. and you know it'll probably get a lot worse and then maybe we'll have some kind of renaissance yeah. in the future the uh it was just something i was uh, i'd meant to say earlier um or actually no this could be another discussion would you say that michael bay is the most influential contemporary filmmaker um in his visual style because i think he has created a visual aesthetic that literally anyone can do yeah, and I think that's a large like when you were saying earlier about the the fact that people like Spielberg grew up watching, uh, you know, sort of Howard Hawks films and 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 learning how to construct stuff that way. If you want to kind of give the sense of an action sequence now, all you need to do is shaky cam, lots of cuts, close up, and literally anyone can do that. Um, they can't do it well, and there are ways to do that well. I'd say you know the Bourne films do that well, mm-hmm. the Hurt Locker does it well at points, but. It becomes it's kind of become this crutch for directors who can't do action to kind of work as a shorthand. And I just noted when I was like thinking about this, 
um you could see you could see this in arguably something like super eight which is a pretty good film in a lot of ways but that train crash at the start looks like something that could be in a transformers film because it's all like loud crashing things and explosions and noise and it's not very clear where everyone's orientated in the scene and things like that well i think it's i think what i'd say to that is i think that's less about michael bay and it's more about cgi right because with cgi you can do anything so why not do it all mm-hmm. why not why not make that train crash yeah as big and as loud and as it, and as as kind of as money shotable as possible it's not necessarily the crash itself though it's the way it's it's constructed and the way in which they choose to edit the scene together because there is a way of doing that train crash where you could do it in a like a single shot mm. or whatever or you know you could create space but the way they do it is you know because i don't think that maybe jj abrams is necessarily the most uh comfortable action director or maybe he wasn't when when he was trying to put that sequence together so using that slightly abstract way that you know has become michael bay's signature and has become kind of a standard way of doing action in the in hollywood Mm -hmm. is a way of kind of accepting that rather than trying to sort of frame it in a more sort of classical way yeah yeah um i yeah, I, it's it's a sad world that we live in where Michael Bay is considered influential. But I think you are probably right that that um, Michael Bayhem, I believe is what his style is called, um, has kind of pervaded and have, has been adopted by so many people. Um, and certainly from watching a lot of trailers, you can see that. Yeah. That it's all about, you know, wedging those kind of money shots into uh, as short a space as possible, which is really how he approaches making a feature film, which is squeezing as many of those money shots as he can into two hours or whatever it is he's got. Um, um, But I do think that CGI has has got something to do with it. And where I lose so much action is when it's not practical, when it's done through CGI, um, no matter how good it is, it's still not photorealistic and things don't move right. I mean, Iron Man yesterday, the way that the, the, the... in the suits just kind of land and stop and they have no momentum they have no uh considering they're so heavy they have no weight to them mm. um it all becomes a blur because you shoot it tight and you do it quick so people don't see where the strings are yeah you know what i mean and it, it michael bay is is the worst for that he will just shove stuff in your face so you don't notice or you know you can't really keep up with what's happening at the end of the point, at the end of the um, the the film, it hasn't mattered because the characters aren't interesting and the script's not very good. So, what you've got is a headache and uh, a you know va- vaguely kind of nauseous feeling that you've sat through that and <laughs> paid for it, which is why I refuse to pay to see a Michael Bay film. It's good on you. I endorse downloading illegally <laughs> uh, when it's Michael Bay. Um, okay, to uh, wrap this up because I feel like um, we've been pretty negative on uh, blockbusters. Um, we would like to run down what we consider um, the best blockbusters of um, the most recent kind of blockbuster epoch. So we're saying since The Matrix, uh, which is 99. Um, Before that, the kind of epoch would have been between 99 and probably Terminator 2. Yeah. So that kind of era. So we'll go for uh, the most recent one. So we're going to talk about the the best 
we'll try and pick the 10 best blockbusters. Now, I'll admit I had trouble because uh, I, I don't really get into this kind of caper. Um, so I apologise if my choices are obvious. So, Ed, would you like to get started? Yeah, um, start off with uh, of a recent one. I'd go with The Avengers just because I really, you know, I, I had pretty high expectations, less because of, you know, general good feeling towards the Marvel films, but because I've, I'm such a big fan of, of Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. And I felt, as I said earlier, it had, you know, these kind of state-of-the-art visual effects, but at the core, it had a good script that had, you know, good dialogue, and, you know, it it had an understanding of its characters and what their aims were, which, you know, allowed me to become invested in what was happening to them in a way that I can't really say was true of pretty much any of the, the sort of the composite films that led up to it, so... For me, that was that was it's it's that kind of raised it up for above what the sort of general level of most blockbusters nowadays are. Right, um, I'm gonna pick um, a film which you will follow on with with the sequel. I'd imagine um, I'm gonna pick the first Lord of the Rings film. Um, I think that um, it stands out for me. Um, I my issue with the Lord of the Rings trilogy is that the second and third films. Uh, become a bit messy, a bit scrappy. The third one in particular, there's a lot going on and they do solve a lot of problems in that film by throwing CGI at it. Mm. And um, in a lot of cases, it just feels less like the first film where there's a lot of practical effects. There is CGI in it, obviously. Um, and I think the fact that Gollum's not in the first one right. uh, highlights the fact that how much everything is done practically in that. Um, but what I like about those what I do love about the Lord of the Rings films is that they are really made with a lot of love and care and attention and um, the people behind them have clearly um, taken the time to design everything right and uh, everything looks right and feels right. It feels odd and otherworldly but familiar enough uh, that you can kind of feel comfortable in it without kind of feeling a bit daft. Um, And the action scenes in it are... um, fantastic and mm. the whole minds of moria sequence is a kind of relentlessly tense bit of blockbuster cinema um that i really uh do like and you'll follow on from that by picking with uh lord of the rings the two towers it's rubbish <laughs> what i like about it is like i mean everything you say about um fellowship of the ring is is true and great what i like about it is i think it's got the most interesting kind of character arc of the whole series which is uh, Gollum's relationship to Sam and Frodo which continues on into the third one but is more or less resolved by the end of the second one that's mm-hmm. kind of the self-contained thing is the way in which he kind of warms to them but then you know gives in to his sort of is is you know and as Smeagol kind of bef- uh, befriends them and then gives in to his uh, lesser his worse instincts by the end you know leads them into the trap that starts the third one off um, but also, you know, I think that, you know, the Battle for Helm's Deep is, a, you know, a really stunning achievement. It, you know, it's, it looks gorgeous. It doesn't suffer from quite the over-CGI-ness of the third one, largely because it all takes place at the night. time, yeah. And it's easy to hide those things. But, you know, also I think that it's, it's just the way that it ramps up is sort of expertly done. It really establishes um, the scale of it all and the stakes of what's involved. And then... 
every so often you know it introduces something like you know the battering ram where they have to kind of sneak around the side and, and destroy it or the uh, the orc that blows himself up the uruk high sorry that blows himself up and you know blows up the wall which is a spectacular moment and a film that features a suicide bomber called the two towers yeah controversy <laughs> Tolkien predicted it all. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's, um, I think there's, it, f- for me, you know, those things are what kind of, and also, I do like. Maybe this is just because you know I'm I'm, you know, quite a heavy sort of TV person, but I do like the fact that it jumps between all of these different stories that are happening at the same time, and there's a kind of a there's a kind of forward motion to it that's constant. Uh, the second one just about manages to pull that off the third mm. one they really struggle because some of the storylines aren't quite as interesting yeah and they also have the problem that they've all got to wrap it up at the end yes whereas if it's just sort of threads that are hanging and then maybe some minor arcs that uh that resolve by the end but not a huge amount then it's kind of it's kind of easier just to keep them up in the air yeah it's got no beginning and no end it's a weird mm. film to make the middle one of a trilogy it is um but I th- you know i i really really like it i've always i've always really loved that one um cool i'm gonna so that's three down mm-hmm. uh, i'm gonna move on and i'm gonna pick um the only marvel film that i like um which is uh, captain america like um that. and i liked it because um i kind of like the 50s vibe mm-hmm. um the whole skinny Chris Evans thing is it Chris Evans? Yeah, yeah. The whole skinny Chris Evans, muscly Chris Evans thing didn't throw me off, even though it, it looks like an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of liked the whole fifties vibe. I also really loved the ending. Yeah. I really did feel like the ending was kind of subversive, which is not what you expect from the director of Jumanji. No, <laughs> or no. Jurassic Part Three. No, um, but I no, I really liked it, and I really liked Captain America as a character, and he. He is, for a good portion of the the film, a propaganda tool who is just kind of going around. He doesn't get thrown into the action straight away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's quite tongue-in-cheek, Captain America, and gets away with it in a yeah. way that I really didn't think Thor did. Right, okay. Um, I felt like Thor was, you know, they, they kind of thought it was roughly Shakespearean. And to Hollywood executives, Shakespearean is men with beards and British accents. So they gave it to Branner got some men with beards and british accents put it in there and hope for the best even though it was very 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 silly and didn't there was only a few moments where the the lightness of tone worked i think when he was in new mexico wherever it is and he's asking for a horse to get places but the rest of it was i hated and natalie portman's character what can you tell me about that character she's a scientist she looked like natalie portman and she was a scientist and that was it she is the least developed character I think I've seen in any film in the last ten years. Uh, so yeah, well, I, that's I, mine, Captain America. I like I like Thor in general, but you know I think I think everything you say about um, mainly because Thor is kind of like quite campy, and I, to me it worked in kind of a Flash Gordon sort of way. Um, I didn't think it was camp enough though. I think. Yeah, and for me, it, it kind of it, it had the right sort of balance. Those sort of things. I, I kind of invested in the characters, and I also did you know find it quite funny and quite amusing but um i can see why you know it might not have been enough in that far because you know there are parts of it which are very self-serious tom hiddleston was good oh yeah great and he's very good in the avengers as well Mm. um also in terms of captain america i really like how the character's kind of intentions are depicted as sort of not really jingoistic he you know his his justification is you know i don't like bullies 
which I think is it's kind of heartwarmingly pure a motivation for you know wanting to go fight and also makes that middle section in the film where he's not allowed to and they just make him into a propaganda machine yeah kind of funny because it's all it's shot in a very entertaining way but also you can kind of understand why he'd be frustrated that he's been made into a super soldier and all they've said is no you have to go and help raise war bonds yeah do some dance numbers what have you got uh, my next one is uh, Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, that is a pretty good blockbuster. It is pretty great. I was torn between that and the fourth one, but the third one stuck with me longer than the fourth one, even though the fourth one I've seen more recently. So uh, that's J.J. Abrahams, is it? Yeah. Yeah, the third one directed by him. Um, it's very much kind of a MacGuffin-y sort of thing, you know, where, for, to be honest, I can't really remember what it is they're chasing, but it's just told... Philip Seymour Hoffman, I believe. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hey, that's that's a, a thing that that's the thing that the third one has over the fourth one actually is its villain because it's Matthew Elmerick in the th- in the fourth one I think I don't even know who that is is it Matthew no not Matthew Elmerick sorry um, uh, it's uh, Michael Nyquist from uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo the original right in the um, in the fourth one and he's kind of not really there much as a figure he doesn't really have much of an effect the fourth one gets by because it, it kind of ups the comedy between the members of the team Whereas the third one works because it's got that interplay, fun interplay between like Simon Pegg and, and everyone, but it also has um, Felix Seymour Hoffman who is genuinely menacing. Mm. Um, and there's the bit where he's like threatening Tom Cruise on the plane, which then leads into the um, sequence on the bridge, uh, which is an expertly handled action sequence that's hugely entertaining and exciting. That has its money shot in its trailer, but it's still part of a whole sequence in yeah. the film which works for the story and everything it's not just thrown into it jazz was, it up it also has quite a, it also is interesting to see something that has like that it shows like the weird physics of explosions which is the explosion happens behind him yet it sends him sideways which mm. is unexpected but actually probably more likely to happen that way so it's quite an interesting interesting and in that it kind of even though the story as in all the Mission Impossible films is kind of ridiculous mm it kind of grounds it. And he had, it's the third one, and it's, you know, a good one, but it's because two was shit. Yeah. I hated two. Two was so ridiculous, and the amount of masks being pulled off and the yeah. stupidness. Um, it's a good point, actually, about, we're talking about um, the devolution of style in the blockbuster. John Woo in Mission Impossible 2 almost kind of vacated the director's chair, and it was like a kind of... Uh, who can do John Woo yeah. kind of take off or everything that seems so ridiculous and could be easily parodied about John Woo's filmmaking was in there as a very serious stylistic motif. But no, uh, your Mission Impossible 3 is uh, is a, a very good addition to the series. I'm going to move on with uh, another J.J. Abrahams film. Uh, I'm going to go for the Star Trek reboot, um, which was uh, a lot of fun um, and... Um, n- uh, kind of tipped its hat to the original TV series in a way that was um, kind of reverent, but also uh, very kind of uh, fun and knowing about it as well. Like, I, the thing I liked most about it was Carl Urbana's Bones mm. was really cool. Yeah. I really liked his character, and I liked the relationship between him and Jim in the films and the, the TV series. Um, it brought it, it had a nice little take on it, and I think my favourite bit of the whole film is the the sequence where 
that he's trying to get his heart rate down. Mm. But he's also trying to get somewhere to warn someone that there's an attack coming. Yeah. Um, which is a very, very cool piece of... Uh, of uh, it's, a, it's an action sequence without being an action sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a... Yeah, I really liked uh, Star Trek. It was a bit confusing in terms... There was a lot of kind of continuity bending yeah, that was happening, yeah. and I didn't quite get it because I'm not really that into Star Trek. Sure. Um, but I enjoyed it. I didn't really dig Eric Banner in it. Yeah, he's kind of a, a weak villain, but I think that, that that plays into the strength of the film, which is about the ensemble. It's about, you know, bringing the band together, essentially, and, you know, establishing all these characters and getting them to kind of play off of each other, mainly focusing on the relationship between Bones and Kirk and Kirk and Spock, mm-hmm. which are, you know, great, and the actors have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And I think that kind of... It doesn't excuse having a weak villain but it makes having a, a sort of a weak villain make sense right to me yeah um well yeah it kind of glosses over it if you if you, your hero is good um what have you got next i've got the dark knight the uh christopher nolan's second batman film i've not heard of it no. No. um it's kind of a little obscure. I don't think you've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, little so, art house film about chaos. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the Empire Strikes Back of our generation, isn't it? I guess. I think so. Yeah, because like the first one was fair, was reasonably successful, but a lot of people really liked it. It p- picked up on DVD, um, and the second one kind of takes the the basic premise, and and you know it's all about escalation. It's exploring the idea that having a Batman in the world will lead to the rise of you know lunatics like the joker um heath ledger's joker is you know hugely entertaining and terrifying you know he's a he's a he's a loose cannon yeah i mean um, that's that's what his most appealing quality is his unpredictability the bit oh, yeah. i was talking to you about this before that when he does the magic trick with the pencil yeah that's the point when i watched that film that i thought right i actually don't know what he's going to do from scene to scene which is what you want from a villain because yeah. so many villains are predictable and you know, they do a monologue before they dispatch you or whatever. Um, but Heath Ledger's Joker really, you know, you really couldn't count on what he was up to. He is he is a force of chaos in, um, you know, like uh, Christopher Nolan's films are very controlled. Generally, they, they they you see that a lot in sort of Inception as well. Is they they move in a very sort of rigid way and the characters act in very rigid ways. So to have a character like that who is completely insane and you know could do anything, you know injects a huge amount of risk and excitement into proceedings mm. um and also you know there's it, it's, it's it's a film that nicely balances ideas of you know being a film about chaos and tr- control and you know an allegory for the war on terror um with being a really entertaining action film and you know those two things shouldn't should cancel each other out but somehow they just managed to keep the balance going and again I think it's it's the strength of the performances really and the fact that the action sequences are very well handled yeah the only bit I, I really checked out of the bit with the boat yeah the bit with the boats is it feels is, a bit superfluous yeah it's it's the bit that turns it into sort of like a four act film really yeah could have, could have cut it short um, the next film and the last film on my list because like I said I really struggled to get uh, some films together for this is uh, by default Batman Begins um, I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember thinking, do you know what? This is uh, not bad. <laughs> um, there was a bit, um, he was in prison, like in Tibet somewhere. Yeah. I've, I like films set in Tibetan <laughs> prisons. Um, what else happened in that? Morgan Freeman is his butler. Is he his butler? No, he's the guy who's, 
Who's that's the butler? Michael Caine. Michael Caine's the butler. As you can tell, I don't. Morgan Freeman's the head of the sort of research and development thing. Of course, of course. And then at the end, he's he's appointed the CEO. Oh, Tom Wilkinson is an Italian American gangster. Yeah. And is it is Treat Williams in it? I think so. There we go. I remembered more about. I remember it for Treat Williams more than I do about any of the action. It's possibly his greatest performance. No, his Treat Williams' greatest performance is his critical bill in uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Have you seen that film? That's true. Yes. Uh, in any film which introduces a character who is uh, punching a corpse hanging on a meat hook whilst listening to Johnny Cash, that tells you everything you need to know about that character. <laughs> um, yes. So, um, yeah, I'm out with Batman Begins. So we should have two more entries, and you can pick them both, Ed. Go nuts. Okay, great. Um, I'll go for uh, The Bourne Ultimatum. Right. The third in the Bourne trilogy. Um which I think it's more because it's a culmination of a series that I really, I really liked. I think Matt, Matt Damon is great in those films. I think he's, he really sells the kind of the, the emotional turmoil of his character. Um, Paul Greengrass's style, I don't mind so much because I think, you know, he makes good use of the sort of the sort of the chaotic elements of a lot and a lot of the stylistic choices that we've been talking about. Um, and I just like the way in which it kind of weaves this surprisingly complex mythology around like black ops and you know um conspiracy theories and and, and a distrust of authority which is you know quite a subversive idea that you don't really see in a lot of overly a lot of blockbusters which tend to be overly militaristic in a lot of ways because unless you are the army won't let you play with their toys yeah which is why i think michael bay's films are very deferential towards the the various military forces uh, depicted. Yeah. Um, and then last one, I will go for uh, X Men Two or X Men United, as it's called in the states. Even though it makes it sound like a football team. Imagine X Men United. You wouldn't put Wolverine in goal, would you? <laughs> you just punch <laughs> the ball all the time. Um, You'd put. Uh, you wouldn't put Professor X in goal. No. Or uh, Kitty Pride, who just passed right through her. Yeah. Um, so X Men United, I put blob, worst football put, team ever. Put Blob in there. Yeah. Blob, yeah, Blob in nets. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Down. Tell it. I I think I've seen X Men two. It's what the one. Um, Has it got Vinnie Jones in it? No, that's the third one. I haven't that seen that. Good that, that ain't good. That ain't good. Rule of three again. <laughs> um, no, X Men Two is uh, you know it builds on the world established in the first one and brings all the characters back, but as is in the case also with you know the Dark Knight and Spider Man Two as well, it, it, it that kind of frees the filmmaker up to kind of play around a bit more. There's a greater scope. It delves into um, Wolverine's backstory a bit more, and again, there's kind of a thing about conspiracies and, and military stuff. It's got Brian Cox as a great villain. <laughs> Brian Cox is a villain. Shock. Um, well, sometimes he's not, like in um, Deadwood, where he's an effete actor. Mm, or have you seen L.I.E., where he plays the friendly neighbourhood paedophile? <laughs> no. That's a that's a brilliant film. I'd recommend that. Ed. Okay, L.I.E. Yeah, Long okay. Island Expressway. Oh, okay. It's a uh, an undiscovered gem with okay. uh, Paul Dano. Is one of his very early performances. Oh wow, cool. I'll tell you what, I lend it you, and you can watch it. Oh, cheers. Mm. Um, and then yeah, sorry for that interruption right. there. <laughs> Uh, letting people know what we're lending each other. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it, it has a lot of fun elements to it. It introduces um, some cool characters, namely uh, Nightcrawler, played by Alan Cumming. Cumming. Yeah. 
who's uh, you know who has this amazing you know has this amazing opening sequence in which he nearly kills the president by like just um, teleporting around the Oval Office and like beating the crap out of a load of. Is he Russian in that? Uh, I don't think he's he's Eastern European. Right. Okay. And you know it deepens the kind of. Uh, uh, sort of ambigu- ambiguity of the relationship between Magneto and Professor X, which is al- always one of the most compelling things about the comics, really. The idea that they are mortal enemies and best friends at the same time. They've never, no matter what they do to each other, they can never really kind of escape that. Um, and it's just a uh, a really, really thr- thrilling film that balances all those characters and all those ideas really well and also kind of becomes more explicit in the undercurrent of the first two x-men films which is that it's a parable for the um for the gay rights movement in america particularly in one scene in which a character is asked by their mother have you ever tried not being a mutant which is a very funny kind of underlying uh, 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 under under yeah underlining of the way in which brian singer used that to contemplate to (coughs) commentate on the uh, the gay experience through you know magic powers because <laughs> uh, it wasn't X Men originally supposed to be about the civil rights movement yeah that's the the thing that's been you know that's really good about it as a sort of comic is that it, as time's gone on it's that clever writers have shifted sort of so now the gays out. have got their teeth into it is that what you're saying <laughs> now it's part of the pinko commie gay conspiracy oh my god um, so that's that wraps up our our top 10 blockbusters made since 1999 um a motley crew of films of uh you know i'm, I'm not too convinced of that list's uh, <laughs> uh quality but yeah to be, that, yeah to be fair that's less an indication of our ability to come up with good blockbusters yeah that's hollywood's inability to make good blockbusters yes or my inability to remember what i've seen um which maybe that'd be part of it also doesn't help also um, you said i couldn't include pixar films yeah, because yeah, that yeah, that's cheating. Um, because we could just make a top ten, and they'd all be Pixar films. Because every Pixar film, with the exception of Cars, is better than any film on that list. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Yeah, so um, you know that would have just killed the joy of that list because <laughs> that was so much fun to come up with. Yeah. Um, so that's a good place to uh, wind things up. Um, like we always say, if we haven't mentioned it in this podcast, it ain't shit. It's not worth knowing. Um, so yeah uh, we'll be back next month talking about something else Um, okay so yeah it's uh, goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me